Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of Making It Women in Film, a podcast where we sit down with women working across the film and TV industry to talk about their journeys, advice, and the importance of diversity in front and behind the camera. I'm your host, Avita, and for this week's episode, I was joined by Nikki Peterson. Nikki is a highly successful filmmaker living in Paris, and today she's going to tell you all about her journey into the industry, reveal secrets about running a successful business on your own, and how to create healthy habits and a good work-life balance. This was an incredibly insightful talk, and I really hope you all enjoy it just as much as I did. Now, also, don't forget that you can send in your own questions to our guests on our Instagram, at makingitwomeninfilm. All right, let's just get into the episode. And I'm here with Nikki Peterson. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very excited for this. So, I mean, you've worked with some incredible brands and you've really built your portfolio up over the past years. I mean, from working with Vogue, Armani, Lancome, Google, YouTube, and directing several award-winning documentaries your success cannot be understated but I'm interested to know where before all of this does your story begin well thank you for that first of all I'm very flattered it's it's a very flattering introduction um I you know that's a great question I um I grew up in in the 90s in a suburban upper middle class community in Colorado uh in the U.S. and um no one in my family was in the film industry, but my parents loved film. My fam- my entire family loved films. And it was sort of a tradition for us um, every Friday, Saturday night to go to the movie theater. Um, you know, I don't know if you know what some of those suburban communities are like, but it's like, that's one of the few things there really is to do other than like go shopping and go to the gym. So uh, <laughs> my family chose... Um, chose the movies and uh so we would we would go we would go to the movies and see anything everything every week um I come from a large blended family and so you know every week one of the children would get to pick uh the film that we would go see and as we grew into teenagers we were exposed to um more and more sort of diverse uh diverse content obviously as as you are when you grow up and then it was a great time, I think, for, for film. And it was a great time to be a kid. We were allowed to stay home all summer by ourselves uh, when we were like, you know, eight years old. And my parents would give us some money and we would ride our bikes to the local movie theater. There was actually a, what we called the $2 theater, which were movies that had already like run the mainstream theater circuit, but ha- hadn't been released to video yet. Oh, that's um, so interesting. So- I didn't know that existed. Yeah, so we called it, well, it, it, it wasn't actually called the $2 theater, but we named it that because it only cost $2 to get in. And we would go to the gas station across the street and like buy candy uh, and stuff it into our pockets and sneak it in because the popcorn and the candy in the movie theaters were too expensive for, for young kids to afford with the, you know, the money, the pocket money our parents gave us and the odd jobs that we did. So we'd sneak in there and we'd watch as many films as we possibly could afford to see um, in the theater. And 
it was also the time of blockbuster videos these oh, video yes. clubs <laughs> which, <laughs> which we'd you know again we'd walk there and like go have um you know horrible chemical um like sodas and candies and ice cream from like everything <laughs> blue yes <laughs> everything blue and we'd have blue tongues and we'd go in there and rent movies and video games for the entire weekend and it was just like it was just the thing we did I think um and so I don't think I realized my love for film until a little later I remember going to see Fight Club I think it came out in 1999 and it was one of the first films that sort of made a huge impression on me and where I started to understand, you know, things about the world and myself and philosophy. And I suppose coming away from a film, feeling something with a message instead of just being entertained. Um, I was like, whoa, there's so much out here. And so I told my parents um, that I thought I might want to be in the film industry to some capacity. Um, I didn't know what yet. I actually like tried a little theater and acting, but I, I was so horrible <laughs> and I, it wasn't for me. I did not want to be on stage, um, but that just seemed like the most obvious thing for like a 12 year old girl to do is like, oh, I like the film industry. I want to be an actress. And I realized I definitely don't. I want to make film. And so my parents like gave me a list of classics. They said I needed to watch if I wanted to, <laughs> if I wanted to go into the film industry. And then I just like studiously watched all the classics one by one. I remember watching, um, Annie Hall for the first time, Woody Allen's Annie Hall, um, and being so disappointed because I realized that all my parents' witty jokes that they'd been telling us for so many years had actually been uh, <laughs> plagiarized um, and that they stole them from Annie Hall. Um, and with every film I'd watch, I would gain uh, some sort of new outlook uh, to the world, you know, I, I remember watching um, The Graduate and understanding the power of cinematography, for example, I think I was 15 or 16 when I saw it for the first time, and realizing how the lens and the placement of the camera um, can also tell a story. And I remember watching Rear Window, which was this commentary on film itself and on voyeurism and, and just all these concepts were opening up to my young mind. And, and it was, it was like, you could travel anywhere through film. You could travel to the past, you could travel to another, you know, socioeconomic class. Um, you could travel to a fantasy world um, and you could travel geographically. And I started Blockbuster, started getting some foreign content, although unfortunately uh, foreign film distribution wasn't that widespread in the US at that time. But um, then I started watching foreign films and that's one of the things that helped me fall in love with France. Um, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to move to Paris and I got to see some of the first films, you know, from Les Frères Lumière um, and the whole invention of cinema. And I was like, I, I, need to, I need to go to France. I need to go there to make films. So, yeah, so that's basically how, how my love for, for film came about. Um, and I would also add that 
it was a it was a great time to grow up in suburban America, but it was also kind of a dark time. If you can recall, um, that's uh, I was in middle school when Columbine happened, um, and it was just you know forty five minutes away from the suburban town I lived in in Colorado. It's 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 very much the same um, sort of place. Um, and we knew people who went to the school. I fortunately didn't know anyone who. Um, the victims but but it was very scary and very real and it was the first in a string of this what seems like these never-ending um you know school shootings and shootings period and um and if you I don't know if you've ever seen the Gus Van Sant film Elephant but um it's it's a film that was made that was inspired by the events of Columbine and 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 you really can see the sort of like cliques at the time and there were these cliques of cheerleaders and football players and nerds and jocks and mean girls and and I think I didn't really fit into any category and um and so that was always hard for me like I fit in a little everywhere but not entirely and so film for me it was like these windows to the world. Um, and I was able to realize that there were other things and other people out there. There were characters that I could identify with. And um, so that was that was why I wanted out of suburban America. And yet, you know, I had a very happy upbringing, but, you know, I, I was fascinated by the dark side of it because there is a dark side. I remember American Beauty coming out as well when I was in high school. And for me, that was like, um, that film felt very, felt very real, felt like very much what I was experiencing. So I guess, yeah, that, that all of these things kind of inspired me to, um, to be in the film industry. Um, I realized how much we were influenced by the stories that, um, that these films told, and then, um, just also fascinated by the process the more I looked into it. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a way to, not only, I mean, watching movies is a way of escapism, but making movies and stories is a way of exploring all of these different aspects and seeing, you know, different careers, different lives, different worlds, uh, and really being in it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. What was your first job in the industry? Um, so my first job in the industry um, was actually uh, as a journalist and producer at CNN. So it wasn't exactly it wasn't exactly film. Um, and it was a little bit of a rude awakening for me when I graduated from film school, because because for, for some reason, I naively thought that I was going to graduate um, because I, you know, I'd been very hardworking. I'd made a lot of short films, you know, I'd been in the student film festivals and won prizes and all these things. So I kind of thought, all right, I, I've made it here. I've worked my ass off. And so I just graduated. So the phone's going to ring and someone's going to call me and see if I want to direct a feature film. Like it was completely naive of me. And, um, and the phone didn't ring. Um, Fortunate, well, fortunately it did ring, but not for that reason. Um, I had done an internship with one of my film um, professors who also uh, was this producer who ran CNN in Paris. Um, and uh, she had become sort of like a mentor to me. Um, and I was very thankful that she was um, a woman because I had some encounters with 
producers who I think had male, older male producers who I think had ulterior motives. And, and so it was kind of a hard time, you know, you're in your early twenties and you're trying to get into the industry and, you know, it was way before the Me Too movement and all of that. So it was sort of like, you, you didn't know where you stood and you were young and impressionable and just trying to figure out how to be a filmmaker. And so anyway, fortunately this woman who has since passed away, her name is, um, is Pat Thompson. And she, um, uh, she called me up and said, you know, you're hardworking, you're motivated, I'm going to give you a chance as a, a producer and journalist here at CNN, we need, you know, we need people like you. So I showed up, um, I had no idea what I was doing on the first day, you know, I showed up and I was like, all right, so here I am, <laughs> full of motivation. And, you know, I can uh, write an essay uh, analyzing, you know, <laughs> um, for the, you know, post-World War I German cinema uh, from film school. And I can certainly, you know, put together and turn on a camera, but in terms of producing and creating a news report, I had no idea what I was doing. And fortunately she sort of, um, well, I was thrown into it obviously, but she also really took the time to, to teach me and to give me opportunities that would teach me what to do. Um, and so I sort of learned the ropes in production that way. Um, and through that experience and through, because you meet people so quickly, um, you know, I made connections very quickly and I was able to move into the world of documentaries and, um, you know, reality shows too, which is something I'm, I'm sort of proud of um, and sort of not proud of, but they were all the rage at the time. And so um, what would happen is a lot of Americans would come over to Paris to shoot like an episode of a show. And then um, I would work on that episode and, um, and then they would, uh, some of them would say, okay, you're, you're great, you're a great producer, let's give you a chance, why don't you come back with us to LA or New York or wherever, and you can, um, you know, you can finish the, the series with us, and um, so it was a really, it was a, it was a, a really great time, and I think I was in a lot of fortunate situations, you know, being, also being an American in Paris, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's rare, but there is a niche there when you're sort of like, you know, in America, yeah, yeah. Paris, um, and I think it afforded me some opportunities that I may not have had because, you know, had I been in the running for CNN in the U.S. with you know all these other like top of their class people graduating from journalism school, I don't think I ever would have been um, afforded the role. So, um, so I kind of was at the, you know, it was kind of a right place, right time situation, um, and I came with a lot of um, hard work and enthusiasm, but I also think that there was there was an aspect of that for sure what when did you move to Paris was that for that job or when did that happen no so we we skipped a chapter because yeah. I went to, I went to film school in Paris um, oh so right what ended up happening was I I did an exchange in high school um I had decided I was obsessed with France. I'd never been to France. I was obsessed with France and decided that it was the place that I needed to be because everyone was creative and sitting in cafes, um, people watching and writing novels or whatever I thought that they were doing. Um, so I, um, I convinced my parents to let me go on an exchange, a nine month exchange to live with a host family in France and learn French and go to French high school and, and all of that. 
So I did that and, um, and it was wonderful and came back to America for, for my senior year of high school and just thought, okay, I, I know I want to, I know I want to be in film. Um, you know, I could go to LA, I could go to New York, you know, I could go to Tisch at, at NYU or, or I can try my luck and come back to Paris and, and Paris was calling. So I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to come here. I, I really liked indie film and I knew how much sort of easier it was in Europe to get like financing um, for indie films and how it seemed to me to be easier to kind of make it in the industry um, in Europe, just because the way things are set up. So um, in my 18 year old mind, I was like, okay, that's the place I have the best chance of making it. So I'm gonna go there. And so I went to school, um, went to film school in Paris. It was an awesome experience, but I think that was, that was one of the first times I really like overtly experienced um, sexism because again, I think growing up in the place that I did and the way that I did, I was kind of fed the message that women can do anything if you work hard enough, just like anyone can do anything if you work hard enough. So it was very much about that. And yeah, I mean, we're still fed all the crap by the media that um, that has influenced us and, and by films because, you know, I grew up at, at a time where, you know, romantic comedies were oh, prevalent. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and even the Disney fairy tales that we used to watch. So, so, so there was that. Um, I'm not going to say that I didn't experience any sexism. I think I wasn't aware of what I was experiencing as, as a young girl, but it was much more overt when I got to film school because I was one of like maybe three females in an all male, um, um, you know, school and class. And, um, and I got along really well. A lot of my friends were always guys. I got along really well with them. It was cool. Um, we were in class together, they respected me, they knew I knew my stuff. And, you know, I watched all the films and read all the books. And I was, I, I was a teacher's pet type. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. And we were all friends and we hung out after class. But as film students do, you know, we all had personal projects that we wanted to do on the weekends, we all wanted to make shorts, you know, we were young and in Paris, and um, why wouldn't you, right? And that was where it was really hard because they would always be like, okay, you know, we're going to make a short this weekend. Do you want to be our makeup artist? Do you want to be our assistant? Do you want to be the stylist? You know? And, mm. and so I was like, they have no respect for me. Like, this is going to, this is going to oh. be, really you know, and it, and it was, it was really tough to be seen as a filmmaker also just specifically on anything technical, which, um, you know, I didn't want to be a DP and I, uh, I didn't necessarily want to be an editor, but in film school, you do all of those things. You learn all of those things and you have to. And I think it's a great experience. Uh, I think when you're a director, the more you know, the more you know. Um, and yet no one trusted that I could handle a camera or carry equipment or do any of those things because I was a woman. And so that was something that like I really wasn't expecting and really threw me off. And um and I think it was my first interaction to the, to the like to the fact that well things weren't going to be fair. Um, I was going to have to work that much harder if I wanted to make it in the industry um, because you know I was you know I was a privileged white young woman who in this industry was a sort of minority, and so that was weird to me too, coming from the place that I came from. I wasn't used to that, and yet like honestly, I'm I'm. 
extremely fortunate and privileged. And even the fact that I was able to come to Paris, like I have to, I have to acknowledge that privilege, you know, but, um, but there was this thing that was like, okay, it's still even so going to be harder for you than it is for these white men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, how is your experience now as a woman of um, all these years later? That's a great question. And I think, um, I think things have evolved a lot and I think things are evolving a lot. Um, and that is really, that's really encouraging to me. Um, I mean, I've seen films themselves evolve. Um, I've seen, um, more and more female directors. I mean, Nomad Land just one best director, and um, and that was a big moment for me. The second woman ever to 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 win the category, um, and um, and then you know Regina being nominated at the Golden Globes and all of that. I think you know that those were those are important things for me to see because I wondered to what extent it would ever happen, and I hope we'll get to this point where it's not even a thing we have to say, you know, like it's just like relative, like half the directors are women, half the directors are men, everyone's diverse, you know, like it's inclusive of all communities. And, um, and yet we still do have to say, all right, you know, this is the, the, the second female director to win the category. So things are changing slowly. The stories we're telling are slowly changing. I think to and and it's not only the stories I mean there are a lot of things because there's um you know there's even the concept of the male gaze and the fact that even some female um filmmakers have been obviously conditioned by that because that's what we've been watching whole entire life so so it's really uh how do we break through that and and get to this place where our vision is just as mainstream and female characters evolve into real characters with real interests and not just like love interests yeah um, love interests eye candy mm -hmm. yeah exactly and where we don't objectify women in the same way and so um I see the change um and I think that that's great and I see especially this past few years so much more openness towards female directors um because they're I, I feel like we're waking up um and not just female directors but any sort of diversity that we weren't seeing before it's interesting I obviously sexism is rampant all over the world um but I'm still a bit surprised by the overt sexism in, in a French film school, considering, you, you know, you have figures like Agnes Varda, who's like an icon <laughs> for yes. so many people, right? And I actually, it's, it's funny, I actually had, the, I also had the chance to um, to know Agnes and to, really? to work with her slightly. Yeah, it was... Oh, um, it was really fortunate and um, and it, it was lucky. It was through um, through a, a friend of one of my um, my boyfriends at the time. Uh, and um, and she was an amazing, incredible, inspiring woman. And I remember, um, well, first of all, Cleo de Secasset was one of the reasons I wanted to come to Paris. It was one of my favorite like new wave films and I just loved it. And then coming there and meeting her and seeing how she, she had this, um, this, it was her home and her office and this sort of like loft space in the, in the 14th that was incredible where she worked and lived and did everything and, and, um, and hired a bunch of young women to help her out, which I thought was great. And so I had the, yeah, I had the chance to spend some time with her and, um, 
and yeah, she was, I mean, she was such an inspiration. Um, and yet you're right. I mean, I, I, I feel like there was, there was that, and there is that in France, but it's not, it's not the norm. It's not the mainstream. And I almost feel like things regressed in a way before they progressed. Um, because, um, you know, other than, and yes, there weren't a ton of female directors um, that were still, that were still working at the time. There were some, um, but like most of our professors were male because um, a lot of our professors were working directors. Um, and most of the films that we watched and studied were directed by men other than like, you know, Jane Campion and, you know, there were a few, but yeah, I think, I, you do imagine France and I think during the new wave it was like a lot more open and it was like May 68 which was this big movement in France but then I think kind of it came back to you know just the normal <laughs> sexist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just like anywhere else mm-hmm. and and um, my film school was really international so there were people from all over the world um, and obviously if you're able to come here from all over the world you're privileged and I think that yeah it just it was it, it, it was surprising to me too I didn't expect it to be like that but it was mm. are there any differences you've seen uh culturally speaking from the French and American approach to creativity I think one of the well yes a lot of differences I think one of the biggest differences in the film industry is the budgets. Um, and, and that's not a negligible difference because having worked in both, um, you know, when you're dealing with a, a $16 million film and a $2 million film or a $100 million film and a $2 million film, you don't make the same creative choices um, because, because you're limited, but also when you have huge budget, budgets behind you, you have huge studios behind you. And I think there are a lot of, um, you know, the powers that be are kind of overseeing your work. And so it's never gonna be the director's cut and there are, there's a lot of plays in industry. So um, I think that there's sometimes more creative liberty in France. You know, we have the CNC uh, where you can apply for film financing here. Um, there's, um, there's this status called intermittent in France that's um, that's basically like a working status, almost like it's a way to be a freelancer and you freelance for a certain number of hours and then um, and then you're paid unemployment benefits for the rest of your time. So it really, it's a culture that supports artists and supports creativity and supports the industry a lot more than some. And so um, there are a lot of more independent, smaller budget films that I think are a little bit more director's films than some of the things we can see coming out of the States. And yet, I mean, there are amazing independent films in America. Problem is um, a lot of them like just aren't on people's radar sometimes because of the mainstream ones. And and that's changing with the way that distribution is changing. Um, But yeah, I think that's one of the main differences. Um, Culturally, I think the U.S is, <laughs> I hate to say it, it's a little bit of a cliche, but probably a lot more organized. Um, <laughs> and sometimes you show up on set and, and there's a lot more improvisation. People don't know what's happening. Um, they also like to take long lunch breaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think those are the main differences um, that, that I've noticed. 
Um, and just also just then in the type of films that are produced, because a lot of times, you know, in France, it'll be stories of, you know, it'll be very character centered stories where you can shoot in just a couple locations and make the production as simple and cost effective as possible. Um, and in America, I mean, that exists as well, but you know, there are these high budget productions where the sky's the limit and whatever you imagine and whatever special effects you imagine can go mm -hmm. into the film. So, yeah. yeah. That's interesting, interesting perspectives. But um, when would you say your career really took off then? If I, if I were to say like when I felt like it was starting to, um, yeah, when I felt it was really starting to blossom, I guess there were two two moments. One of them was after having, um, you know, worked freelance for a long, well, worked for CNN and then worked freelance for a long time for a lot of different productions. I opened my own production company. Um, and and so that for me felt like, a, a you know, a, a, an important moment because then I was, I was choosing my projects, I was choosing all the people that worked with me and for me. Um, and so that, yeah, that was, that was a big moment. And then um, I also got the opportunity to be um, a produ production and development ex executive for YouTube Originals. And that was the, the moment where I moved into fixing content because up until then I'd done a lot of ads and documentaries and um uh a lot of yeah just like branded content and things like that so that was like my first step into fiction and um and since I went to film school I think the goal was always and still is to you know move closer and closer to the kind of films that I like to watch and so for me that was um that was a, an important moment. I had horrible imposter syndrome when I was given that role as well. Um, but yeah. Great. Well, we actually had a listener question here on freelancing and, you know, being self-employed. And uh, they asked what, like, the most important qualities a freelancer should have. That's a great question. Um, let's see. The most important qualities of a freelancer... I think that it, it takes a certain type of person to be a freelancer because you don't have career stability. Uh, flexibility for me is 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 one of the first things. I know I know it maybe seems obvious, but um, it, it it's really anxiety provoking for a lot of people to move from project to project, not knowing what their next project is. Sometimes with just a few weeks of visibility. I always found it really stimulating and rewarding to be a freelancer, but I think you really have to have the kind of mind that uh, just is able to go with the flow and accept um, the highs and lows that come with that. Um, otherwise, it's like you'll never you'll never be serene. So I think my first um, my first piece of advice is to be flexible. I guess my second is. Um, is always to do your research because when you're a freelancer, your projects are going to vary greatly um, from one to the next. And that's also what I love about it is, you know, I, I did this like documentary project in the Paris catacombs where um, we like went undercover in these areas that like are not accessible to the public. And we had to like 
do a bunch of research, like weeks and weeks of research to even find out how to get there, where to go, what contacts could bring us down, et cetera, et cetera. So you become immersed in the subject and then uh, you move on to, I did a, worked on a documentary about the Charlie Hebdo attacks. So there, you know, you're, you're immersing yourself in the universe of, um, you know, ISIS that has infiltrated into Paris and you're meeting with these like radicalized youths and, um, and so you have to do your research, learn as much as you can about all the subjects, and then try to kind of always meet people on their their level, whatever level it is. And 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 if you're a freelancer for more corporate projects, for example, um, it's it's really more about reading your client, figuring out what it is that they really want from you and what your role is with them. And that will always change what the expectations are. And then if I could give another piece of advice, I would say it's it's important not to sell yourself short. I think too many times, especially when I was younger, you know, I was pulling 20 hour days, um, accepting rates that were really too low to even <laughs> survive. Of, um, and that was all well and good for a while or probably not at all but i think i thought it was all well and good for a while but if, um the other thing to know is like if you sell yourself short the first time for a client they know you can do it and you're gonna have to come back and do it again so so know your worth um and your value in the industry if you don't um ask around try to get as much information as you can uh, before you settle on a rate um, because it really needs to work, work for both, both parties. I mean, they need to be able to afford you, but you need to be able to make a living and factor in the fact that there is not work stability for a freelancer and, and, and freelancers don't often get the same benefits, um, whether it's, it depends where you live, but health insurance or other benefits that can come along with working for a company. So you kind of need to factor that into, um, your life. You know, I was paying off student loans for a long time, but now I'm like, oh my God, you know, I didn't think about retirement, but someday I'm going to have to retire and I'm not, you know, paying into a pension or anything like that. So I would say on the financial side of things, really do your research, look into, you know, calculate, look into what seems fair. And then you have to remember that companies, it's advantageous for them to hire freelancers because, um, you know, they don't have the long-term commitment. They don't have all the social charges, et cetera, et cetera. So um, whatever you come up with, needs to also be fair for you. Um, Do you have any advice on making a name for yourself, getting clients? Yeah, um, you know, the way it's mostly worked for me is is definitely word of mouth. And so the question that people always ask me is like, what, you know, what is the first thing that you can do when you don't know people when it's like your first project? And I think that's really the hardest thing. Once you do one thing, then you can like, you know, meet people and meet more people and, and, and network. Um, what I did when I was younger, and, and again, I was very fortunate because I did get that opportunity at CNN just through one meeting. But one thing you can do is, you know, make a list of people in your life that have jobs that you're interested in, um, that you admire, and you can reach out to them and ask them for maybe 15, 20 minutes of their time just to get advice to ask them questions about their career and what it's like um and to sort of yeah to, to to open up the network because then what what happens is it's it's nice for 
both parties, the, you know, the person can sort of tell you about their industry and their role and sort of give back by mentoring you. Um, it's not overtly asking them for a job, which can come sometimes feel uncomfortable um, and just like sort of ends the conversation sometimes if you call someone and say do you have anything available and they say no sorry then the conversation's you know done whereas if you call someone and say like I want to find out more about what you do and I have some questions and I'd love to have your advice then that's a whole conversation you can have with them and and they'll learn more about what you want what you know how to do and they can keep you in mind for the future so that those are the kind of conversation like networking conversations I like to have um also, um, I think it's great to find your niche, whatever that is. Um, so there's probably something in the world that you know more about than anybody else. Um, and so figure out what that is and what kind of stories you want to tell. Because even if you're producing corporate content, there are stories there and you need to be able to find them. So figure out what that is. Um, create a brand for yourself, a website, even if you can't do... Um, you know, even if you haven't had any paid projects yet and you're just getting into the industry, get together with some friends. Even if you have no budget, use your phones and make something that's going to impress people and that's going to tell tell a story. I had a little um, like video camera like from the early 2000s that I brought with me to film school it was like a graduation present um I think I still have it and and the image is terrible on it and yet I made one of my first short films on it because that's all I had and at the end of my film school I was showing my portfolio to one of my professors and he told me that's your best film because all the ideas are there and it doesn't really matter if you didn't have, you know, a Sony Z1 or whatever it is, what we're shooting with back then. So you can do a lot with what you have. Um, and so you can put together projects um, that, that barely cost you anything um, and, and create a little portfolio. And then it's just, it's just a lot of like, meeting with people and word of, word of mouth. I have never been successful. Some people are, but I've never been successful cold calling like random potential clients and businesses. I have found it to be a waste of time. I find what works much better is like reaching out to the people you know, the communities you know, and, you know, um, and having more sort of networking in a more authentic way um, where you're not expecting someone something from anyone and you're not pressuring them, but you're letting them know that you've got interests and skills and that you're available. And, and, and maybe there's a cause that you're passionate about and there's a story you can tell about that cause and you'd be surprised. I mean, everyone needs video content. So if you reach out to someone and say, you know, I am very happy to do a video for you just for my portfolio, I'm sure most people would say yes. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, as you said, authentic networking, making connections also so you can maybe build a longer relationship with that client. So it's not just a one-time thing uh, because they're probably going to want somebody in the future as well. So if you can make yourself that person for them, then, you know, <laughs> you've secured a lot of jobs ahead of time. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say is like once you work once for a client and it goes well, like the easiest thing for them is to call you back because they're going to think of you, they're going to refer you. So there really is this like exponential effect. Once you get one or two, those first clients are always the hardest. Um, but then things, um, you know, 
things can move quite quickly after that. And um, in my network, there are also a lot of people who do the same thing I do, who you'd think are your direct competition. But what happens is, uh, you know, they might not be available for a job and they call me up and say, can you do this? So you'd also maybe want to try to reach out to other people who do the exact same thing that you do or want to do. Um, and, you know, you can pass each other jobs. Yeah, um, exactly. Not everything has to be head on head competition. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what has your favorite project been so far? Oh, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> my favorite project so far. Um, well, let's see. I think I, I mean, I really liked the two YouTube series that we worked on. Um, they were two fiction series. So called Groom and Les Emmerdeurs. Um, both comedies, one sort of a dark World War, um, World War II dramedy. And the other one was this, um, comedy that takes place in a, in a hotel. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed the fiction projects. Um, there's so much that goes into them and just being a part of the writing process and seeing how, um, how you can make changes that influence a lot of people because millions of people have watched these shows. And I remember showing up, um, I was hired after the projects had, the creative concepts for the projects had already been greenlit. So we had a treatment um, and we were beginning writing. So there, you know, there were already characters that, that were being created. And I showed up um, to one of the first meetings for Groom and the two female characters um, were a maid and a prostitute and that was it and I was like here's why this isn't going to work for me <laughs> um, and I was able to convince the directors that we you know and, 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 and in a way that they would listen to me because I could have just been like we're not doing this here's how it's going to be but like that's not going to get you what you want you need to collaborate with these people and and they have to believe in their characters and in the creative vision it's you know they were the directors on the project so even if I think that's another piece of advice is like you really want to meet people where they're at and try to find something that works for everyone and so you know I just said I think that we can do so much more with this I think this can be so much more progressive and from there we were able to to change several of the characters into women um, and tweak the story so that I think women felt more represented equally um, and it didn't take anything away from the film. In fact, it made it a lot better. So, um, so those kind of things are important to me. I also, I really liked working for Vogue kind of for the same reasons because I hadn't done a lot of work in fashion until quite recently. Um, it wasn't an industry I was very interested in because it just basically objectified women and represented everything that I am not. And yet I realized there was a great opportunity for social change and so Vogue is a huge platform when you start including uh, you know the LGBTQ community um, when you start representing um, women of all colors and shapes and sizes and um, and you start talking about um, things like sustainability and um, kind of all of the all of the subjects that are important today you can actually change an industry um, you know viewer by viewer um and i don't know if if any of you have noticed but if you look at the past couple years um 
you know, the, the video history on Vogue, you'll see changes. I mean, there, there are still a bunch of cliches, but there's much more representation than there ever was before. Um, and I think that's so important, especially like when, when you have a platform that reaches millions and millions of viewers, um, I think it's your responsibility to use it for, for good and for social change. And, and that's what I'm trying to do slowly, but surely. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, so I'm curious to know what is your like general day-to-day life? Like, what does it look like? That's a good question. I think it's changed a lot since the pandemic, obviously. Um, I, so before the pandemic, I was um, probably half, I don't know, around, around half the time, like based out of my office, but running from meeting to meeting in Paris. And, you know, a typical day could be you get up, you answer some emails on your phone. I have two children. So like bringing my, bringing my son to, uh, bring my son to school or daycare or whatever it was and dropping the other one off and, um, grabbing some coffee, uh, talking on the phone. Usually I would make my phone calls, uh, in the morning while I was walking because I like, I, I don't want to lose time. I think becoming a mother taught me that, which is like, I, I can't afford to lose time unless I'm choosing to lose time, unless I'm consciously being like, okay, I want this time to go for a walk. But if it's just like to get from point A to point B in Paris, then I will. Um, <laughs> Those multitasking I'll, skills are coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I will multitask. I I actually enjoy multitasking and I will multitask. I even leave those, you know, I leave those annoying voice messages on WhatsApp for people because I've heard it's faster, but then the poor people have to listen to me ramble. Um, so I'll like rattle off some voice messages at, at, at different people, uh, just, just so that they can also get their days started because I also have, um, you know, the responsibility of, of giving people instructions of what they need to do. You know, usually my, my editors are waiting for directions from me and the production coordinators need information. And basically as soon as I wake up, people need stuff from me. So, um, I try to do that in the most effective way possible enough to get them started until I can get into the office and send like proper emails and so a lot of times then uh I'll go to the office right now the office is my house um so so in that case um because of the pandemic I'm just um doing the same thing but from home um but before I would go into the office send a bunch of emails and then and then there'd be like and usually are like a slew of meetings to, um, you know, I'll go to, I'll go to the edit room, I'll sit in for a while, watch some projects, go to meetings and pitches on other projects. A lot of times, like a lot of the times back and forth being, you know, in a taxi, on a bike, in the metro, walking somewhere um, and trying to work from all those places. Um, so no days alike. Um, and then, and then obviously, the very different days are the days that we're shooting. And so if you don't work in the industry, um, you might be surprised by how much prep goes into a film for, you know, for a one day shoot, we can be working for two or three weeks um, to get it off the ground. So the percentage of time I'm actually on set isn't very high. And for like a, a fiction projects, you know, those can go anywhere from like six to 12 weeks from the ones that I've experienced. And so, there you'd be on set the whole time but the amount of prep for that is you know months and months in advance so 
Um, so yeah, for the shorter projects, you're in the office a couple of weeks and then you're in post a couple of weeks after that. So really for one day of actual shooting, uh, you know, you're, you're working behind the scenes to make it happen. Um, so yeah, there are, there, there are definitely times then that I'm on set before COVID that I was traveling a lot to different sets. Um, and then, um, no day is alike. I know that also sounds like a cliche, but, um, but they're all different and I, I think they're all really stimulating. And I think that's what I love about my job is that working on several different projects at a time, you can go from a meeting with comedy writers to, you know, uh, a Vogue meeting to a meeting about a documentary on how to save the planet to, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, that that's what I really like and what I find to be really stimulating. And then I always try to take some time for myself and turn off my phone and and this is like my deliberate me time and I'll go for a walk or I'll um before COVID I would like go to the swimming pool and swim because that's a place where you cannot check your phone in a swimming pool mm -hmm. um I had to find the place where you can't check your phone right <laughs> <laughs> or or just like shut off my phone and like read in a cafe I used to do that hopefully I will be doing it again soon um but you have to like take breaks, especially if you are a parent, I think, because when you like for me now, when I get home, it's like I set down my bag and two little munchkins run towards me and then my second job starts. So um, so there's really not a lot of off time if you don't make it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's really important. I think especially already being a creative is such a fluid thing. Like you can't really control it all the time. Things overlap and especially in the state we're in now with Corona, time is very um, all over the place. But it's really important to, you know, really set aside time for yourself, for people around you, um, because it can be a very all-consuming job. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, like being a creative um, and yeah, the fact that it's all, all consuming and that I think as a creative, a lot of times, you know, I don't know how it is for you, but you, you kind of listen to yourself and you need to be in touch with the moments at which you're most creative because you can't just be like, sit down and write, you know? And I know for me, kind of unfortunately, I build my energy throughout the day and I'm probably my best self at like 2 a.m. Like I would, I, I'm a night owl and I'd stay up really late writing and I still sometimes do, but um, having kids and being forced to, you know, conform a little more to society has been a challenge for me because I naturally um, just like to go to bed whenever I go to bed and I like to start writing whenever I feel like writing and get things done, um, you know, at my own pace and at the time where I feel most productive um, and most creative because you've got to feel the inspiration. Otherwise, you're wasting your time by sitting there trying to force yourself. So that's been a real challenge to me to like find time and space to be able to do that without having the luxury of entirely listening to my body and my mind. Yeah. No, definitely. I think it's just like creativity for me personally, at least, is not like an on and off switch. It really isn't. And it's difficult, especially because like my partner, like he works nine to five and that kind of interrupts when I'm like, all right, it's three. I can't do anything right now. And then it'll get to like 11 and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This idea really works. I have to do this right now, you know? Yeah. yeah and I think 
I think it really like has made me question the way we structure our society society, and even our priorities and the things we think are important. Um, and I think COVID has, has done that too, because a lot of people who, um, you know, are creatives, but work in off, offices have to be there at certain times from nine to five or, or unfortunately in our industry, what I've seen more is like <laughs> eight to eight, but, um, have to be in these offices and have to be present, but really are creative and productive for only a fraction of the time. And I really believe that like, if we were a little more flexible and just allowed people to listen to themselves a little more, um, we'd be more productive, more inspired and happier. Like if someone needs to go somewhere, like, honestly, I would rather, and I told, I, I often tell my employees this, um, if you need to go to the, like, all I care is that you get done what you need to get done. If you need to go to the movies at 2 p.m. because you're, you're fresh out of ideas and you need inspiration, like, do that as long as, you know, as long as you make your meetings and at the end of the day, the end result is the same. I don't care how you get there and what your journey is. Um, and it's funny because even telling people that a lot of times they had a hard time actually doing it, like, back when it was a possibility, um, I... Um, I bought like in France, they have this wonderful thing for like 30 euros a month. You can have this unlimited movie pass and go to the movies as much as you want. So uh, that was one of the, the perks that I um, happily provided to my employees before all the movie theaters shut down. And so I would tell them that I would say, you know, if you guys like feel the need to go to the gym, go to the movies, go for a walk, go have coffee, go home, take a nap, whatever it is that's fine with me. I'm, I respect that you need to work on your schedule as long as, you know, as long as our work is done and people wouldn't do it. They were, they were, I think, I mean, sometimes they would, but I think it's so ingrained in us that like, we need to be at the office at certain times and even giving, telling them that you're allowing them that freedom. I think people still have a hard time believing that you really are. Um, you know, like in, in, in the U S a lot of people, places have this concept of unlimited vacation, except you're not really supposed to take it kind of thing. And so I, I think people go into it very wary, like, is she, is she really going to be okay it's with a test? Yeah. yeah, it's a test. And, and, and no, it's not. It's just like, I wanted people to be able to um, work in the same way I wanted to work. And that means being productive at whatever times you feel productive and creative. You know, we're not, it's not like a job that you can just do at any time. So that's, so important and I really hope that we can move towards a more free uh, way of working and move away from this constant hustle culture from 4am to you know yeah whatever yeah for me I mean the biggest thing for me is like trust on both sides like I trust the people that work for me and want them to trust me and so I wouldn't work with someone that I didn't trust. And once there's that trust, it opens up a whole, you know, all sorts of possibilities. I mean, obviously employees need to have their boundaries and employers need to have their boundaries and things need to be clear. But once those things are clear, then it's like, if you trust that someone is doing their very best and there's this, you know, openness and I think respect of their lives and what they are, um, what they need. Um, I found that usually it, it works quite well. I think when the trust is missing, and a lot of times that happens in big companies where people don't really care about you <laughs> as a, and I, I've 
been a part of those companies and know how it is where it's 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 very one-sided because you give everything to them and and they will spit you out if they need to because there was some sort of you know restructuring in the company or whatever so um but in a smaller company i think it's more easy it, it's easier to have that um that trust on both sides and going back to uh yeah what you were saying about covid i think that this this hustle culture in a way is even more toxic now that people are working from home um, because it's almost like we feel we need to justify. Yes. Mm -hmm. Resting. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, in a way that we didn't before, because it was just integrated into our lives and we could see when people were physically present in the office and see when they weren't there. Um, and it's this big question that I hear around me a lot with other people, whether they're managers um, or, or employees, which is basically like people wanting people to come back to the office and be physically present and not even knowing why they, they feel like they need that um, just because they feel reassured by someone's physical presence. And it's not really about the amount of work that's being done because in reality, having worked in a bunch of offices, you know, there are useless meetings, there are coffee breaks, there are all sorts of things that slow you down. There are interruptions. For me, I, I, I don't work well with a bunch of other people sitting right next to me. Like I, I need to be like shut in a space. So probably from home, I can get done the same amount, like the same thing in two hours as I could in five at the office. And yet like many of my friends are getting up, sitting in front of the computers in their pajamas, going through their whole day and then like not moving all day long, which is not what they were doing before. Um, and there's so much more pressure on them. Um, and so I, I really believe that we need to find a way to end this. I don't know what the solution is, but there's gotta be something. <laughs> I just think it's great we're at least starting the conversation now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now you've obviously done a lot over the years. Um, everything has changed quite a lot for you. If you could tell yourself, your younger self, when you were just starting out in your career, anything, what would it be? Like, I think I would tell myself to enjoy the moment success is now. I always had this idea of like, when I'm going to be successful, like what, what is that gauge? But like, I think if I, I, I could have, cause I, I always had this like sort of intangible moment in sight of like when I would have made it. But I don't think there is a moment when you make it. I think it's a journey. You're on your journey. And there are also highs and lows. I mean, there are things that I did a few years ago that might be more impressive than what I'm doing now. And there are things that, you know, there, there will be ups and downs and um, the industry will change. You will change. Your needs will change. So I would say, like, be kind to yourself uh, and enjoy the moment. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy your journey and whatever place you're at, because, you know, everything, when you're starting out, everything is new and exciting and different and you're learning new things. And even though you don't know everything, like the learning process is, is something that is so exciting and going on set for the first time, it's never, you know, it's, you're never going to have another first. So, um, so yeah, that, that's the advice I would give myself is to enjoy the process and to work really hard on 
trusting yourself and feeling confident and trying not to have imposter syndrome. I don't know if the younger generation has as much imposter syndrome as mine does, um, but but we really did and do. Um, and what we now know is, yeah, I mean, everyone doesn't know what they don't know and they have to start somewhere. And I think specifically with women, um, you know, we apply to jobs and we think that we have to check all the boxes and the requirements. And a lot of times young men will just go for it, even though they don't meet half the requirements. And, and so I would say, apply for that job you don't think you're qualified for and be honest about what you do and don't know, um, but show them, tell them that you're willing to learn. And um, yeah, and just like, chill, I would say, chill the fuck out. <laughs> you'll be fine you'll be fine and like there isn't this pressure of like making it tomorrow like it's okay if you have to take six months off and like you know walk dogs and work as a barista to um you know to regroup and figure out what you're doing it's okay if you have to do those things while you're making films it doesn't make you any less of a filmmaker um if you have another job um it's okay if you've had a really successful first experience and then nobody calls you for six months um, and you have to get some sort of job that isn't in the industry. Like don't give up on your dreams. Um, you don't have to have this linear career path. In fact, I think basically no one does unless they're independently wealthy. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That is such good advice and just beautifully said. Now, it is time for our Women Who Inspire Us shout-out. Nikki, is there a woman, personally or professionally, that you'd like to give a shout-out to? So cheesy, but <laughs> I would love to give a shout-out to my mom, um, who is probably the reason I'm doing this today, um, because she is the one who exposed me to film in the first place and who who shared her love of film with me um and also she is the person who taught me about feminism not because she I mean my mom is a strong um hard-working and beautiful woman who I think taught me that you can be if you want to be in, you know, you can, you can be a woman who likes to dress up and wear makeup and, you know, do all these things. And yet, you know, a working professional. So a feminist doesn't have to look like what I thought as a, as, as a young woman that a feminist had to look like, um, that you can wear what you want and like what you want and, and still be able to do whatever you want. So as a young girl, she taught me that, but also I learned from feminists uh, you know, feminist concepts because I saw how much she struggled to work and manage a household and take care of us and do all these things um, and carry all the mental load and the emotional labor um, and how exhausting that was for her when, um, you know, she was doing everything herself. And that made me want to make changes in our society. So she inspired me also in that way because, you know, she was a mother and a working mother at a time where it was really hard and not a lot of the tasks were shared and that was the social norm um in the place that I grew up in so um so she has inspired me and continues to be, inspire me and she's also a woman who you know that said you know she was uh, a hippie in the 60s and you know free love movement and like 
I don't want to, you know, she doesn't put up with any bullshit. And so she also taught me to, to question things. Um, so that, that, um, that's one, one, one woman who really inspires me a lot. Um, and let's see who's the other woman. Well, um, I suppose I would say, well, I think probably Laura Mulvey and her essay on the male gaze, um, because that was so eye-opening for me. And it's something that I still feel like we really need to tackle in the industry. So, so it's nothing new, um, Mm -hmm. but it is, um, yeah, it's something that's often in my mind. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You've provided some incredibly insightful uh, yeah, views on the industry and your experiences. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun talking to you and I really appreciate the opportunity. Where can people find your work and support you? Um, so I, I am on Instagram, uh, although a lot of what I put on there is just personal pictures, but you can find my work. So it's at Nikki Peterson film. And I have a website called Nikki Peterson film that also links to my LinkedIn and IMDb and all of that. Um, so yeah, feel free to get in touch and anyone who even just has some questions about the industry. I really enjoy mentoring young women as much as I can, as much as I have the bandwidth for. Um, so um, do feel free to reach out if you have questions or just feel like you need some advice um and i i'm able to do it i'd be happy to do so amazing thank you thank you so much if you would like to see more about women in the film industry go follow us on instagram at making it women in film and check out our brand new website womeninfilm.co.uk we're posting lots of recommendations reviews discussions statistics all that good stuff see you next week